You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app. Advocates and lawyers say conditions in WA's hottest prison amounts to torture and fear it's only a matter of time before an inmate dies in a hot cell. I've been told by men at Robin Prison that they feel that their brains are boiling, that the extreme heat temperatures are meaning that their mental health is being severely affected. And Australia's leading welfare agency pushes the federal government to help fund energy efficient upgrades to homes for people on low incomes. I have added this polystyrene tile insulation. We had some heat coming through the concrete roof and the polystyrene has reduced the heat coming through the concrete. I'm Sinead Mangan and this is Australia Wide, coming to you from Wadjuk Country. Summer is yet to officially begin, but temperatures in Australia's north are already soaring into the high 30s, and that's not to mention the humidity. For most people, that means the air conditioning will be cranking around the clock. But there's no such relief for prisoners at Western Australia's hottest jail, where temperatures have climbed higher than 50 degrees. Advocates and lawyers say the situation amounts to torture and fear it's only a matter of time before an inmate dies in a hot cell. Rebecca Dollery has the story. Daniel Carling knows all too well how hot it can get in Robin, a town 1,500 kilometres north of Perth, where daytime temperatures are often in the 40s over summer. The Yamaji man has been in and out of Robin Regional Prison since 2009 for burglary offences. He says spending summer in a cell there was torture. I grew up in Robin, so I was used to the heat, but being in that jail is more worse now. Just like you're going to die in that heat. To deal with the sweltering conditions, the 42-year-old says inmates would be up all night dousing themselves and the floors of their cells in water just to get some relief. Feel the sink up and just chuck it all over us. We got little basins in the cells. And nighttime, yeah, that's what most of us boys was doing. It was that hot. He says there were no window panes in the cells, just metal bars and shutters separating inmates from the elements. Because they got tin things on the side of the grills, that's the, you got to open them, shut them. It'd be like 50 degrees in the cell at night time. Daniel Carling says the heat was terrible for everyone, but older inmates suffered the most. He says some looked delirious. Just dehydration, just not focusing, like your mind's set on something else, on the heat. Like, it just takes it out of you. When you see them old people like that, it just makes you sorry. Did you ever ask the officers to come and help? We would tell them, but it would take them, like, that long just to come check on them. So I suppose just do it. They go check on the old fellow there. They don't look right. Despite the stifling conditions, most cells in Robin Prison don't have air conditioning. The problem was identified 20 years ago by WA's inaugural Inspector of Custodial Services, Richard Harding. He also wrote a report highlighting the need for better temperature controls in prison vans, but says it was ignored until an Aboriginal elder died after suffering heat stroke seven years later. This was rejected by the department on the cost basis until such time as Mr Ward died in the back of a transport from Leonora to Kalgoorlie, at which point suddenly the money was available to start trying to fix the problem. Now Richard Harding is concerned the Robin prison won't be addressed until a prisoner dies in a hot cell. Unfortunately, it would take a death 
and the coroner's inquest and and so on and and so forth. Now, I hope that nobody dies in the summer in a Roban prison cell, which is stifling. But if they do, the department might take the issue seriously. This issue should be addressed as a matter of decency and equity. The lack of climate control at the prison has been the subject of repeated warnings from WA's prison watchdog ever since. Incumbent Custodial Services Inspector Eamon Ryan flagged the lack of climate control as a grave concern in a March 2020 report, concluding prisoners were still at risk from heat in their accommodation. He recommended the government implement effective climate control in all residential units at the prison, a recommendation that's yet to be followed. Alice Barter is a human rights lawyer at the Aboriginal Legal Service of WA. I've been told by men at Robin Prison that they feel that their brains are boiling, that the extreme heat temperatures are meaning that their mental health is being severely affected, they're not sleeping at night and they're finding it very difficult to function during the day. She says it's indefensible the WA government is yet to put in air conditioning, especially given it's got a record $6 billion budget surplus. A few years ago, the department did invest in air conditioning for the staff toilets, and that shows that it can be done and they can pay the money if they decide it's the right thing to do. Ms Barter says Robin prisoners continuing to go without air conditioning amounts to racism. Up to 90% of the population in Robin Prison identifies as Aboriginal. We don't think that this would be accepted if it was not a Aboriginal majority in that prison. There would be public outcry. The WA government won't be drawn on whether it'll install air conditioning. In a statement, a spokeswoman for the Corrective Services Minister, Bill Johnston, says several measures are used to deal with heat risks, including fans at every cell, air conditioning in communal areas and shaded spaces. Alice Barter says the measures are an insult, echoing Richard Harding's concerns about another death in custody. We have said repeatedly to the government, we're worried about a death in custody. And that would be so sad with all this notice that the the government have been given that they don't change it and then an awful thing happens. Former prisoner Daniel Carling says prisoners have lost hope. They don't like asking them for nothing really. That's the way they just keep their head down, do their job and that's it. Rebecca Dollery reporting about Roburn Prison in Western Australia. You're listening to ABC Australia Wide. With summer around the corner and power prices rising, you might be worried about the cost to cool your home. The Australian Council of Social Services wants the federal government to help fund energy efficient upgrades to homes for people on low incomes to help them beat the heat. Jasmine Hines has the story. When Yapoon's Arthur Hunt first purchased his Mediterranean-style home, his cement roof wasn't insulated, and summers in central Queensland get pretty hot. I have added this polystyrene tile insulation. We had some heat coming through the concrete roof, and the polystyrene has reduced the heat coming through the concrete. Changes to the National Construction Code mean all new builds from late next year will have to meet a minimum seven-star energy efficiency rating. But any home built before 2003 didn't have to meet any energy efficiency regulations. Well, we bought the house second-hand in about 1997. We wanted to make it more sustainable, more comfortable, and so progressively we've done things to the house to 
make it better in summer, warmer in winter. Mr Hunt has made his home more energy efficient. Blinds and awnings stop the sun from heating his windows and deciduous frangipani trees shade his home in summer and let heat in during winter. Well, we put this shade structure over the uh, veranda early on and that gives us good shade in the morning and uh, keeps the heat off the house. Uh, We've uh, installed uh, solar hot water. That was one of our first things on the roof. Later on, we were one of the first people to put in solar power. We've only got a two kilowatt system. That was all we could afford at that time. The Australian Council of Social Services is campaigning the federal government to provide energy efficiency upgrades to people in low-income housing to reduce energy bills and prevent energy poverty. Deputy CEO Edwina McDonald says the scheme should include rentals, social housing and low-income homeowners. We know that people on low incomes are living in less efficient homes. They're living in homes that are often poor quality housing and they also have lack of control over that housing. Uh, So people on higher incomes, they can access rooftop solar, batteries, smart appliances and all of that brings down the cost of energy. Uh, But for people on lower incomes, especially those in, in public and private rentals, You can't take advantage of those opportunities. You can't make the changes to to where you live to make it more energy efficiency. And when we say that it's having an impact on health, uh, it's actually at the point that people are dying. So people are dying from living in houses that are too hot or too cold. Federal Assistant Minister for Climate Change and Energy, Jenny McAllister, says the government will create a national energy performance strategy with consultation set to begin shortly. Senator McAllister says policies from the strategy will reduce energy costs, reduce the pressure on the energy system and help meet emissions reductions targets. In the meantime, Mr Hunt wants to inspire others to improve their energy use. Oh, I think it's vital uh, for the household bills for a start. It's, it's just a shame to see people struggling with power bills of, you know, $2,000 a year or something like that. And we've all got to take action on climate change. We've got to have individual action. We've got to have community action. We've got to have government action. We've got to have global action. Jasmine Hines reporting there. Now we're going to head to the Bunya Mountains, northwest of Toowoomba in Queensland. The lush national park is being opened up for tourists in time for the onslaught of visitors expected to arrive for the 2032 Olympic Games. Belinda Sanders visited the site where the oldest known civilization on the planet will be showcased. Every few years or so, thousands of Aboriginal people would leave their traditional lands and descend on the Bunya Mountains to enjoy the Bunya nut harvest and conduct traditional business. It is one of the most important Indigenous sites in the country. Adrian Beatty is a Waka Waka elder, the traditional owners of the Bunya Mountains. Oh, it's everything important to our community. It's like our parliament house, it's where our families camped, lived, removed from, came back to, still coming back to. How do you feel when you spend time in the bunyas? Say you're stressed about something and... Centred, yeah, yeah, you take your shoes off, yeah, you deserve out. The Bush University in the area has been launched to teach First Nations culture. Now the site will be opened up to tourists to absorb ancient knowledge. 
Peter Homan, CEO of Southern Queensland Country Tourism. Look, this is one of the most significant tourism projects um, that Queensland's seen in many, many years. It's, um, it's not only is it a spiritual part of the Indigenous culture, but um, it's just in a beautiful um, part of the world. And we see this as, um, you know, integral to, to tourism moving forward. And it's also a, a sharing of knowledge of the oldest civilization in the world. It features three rainbow serpent coils with sections for women's business, men's business and a central performance space. Work also includes a songline's sculpture in the shape of a lotus lily, walking tracks and landscaping. It is spectacular. Waka Waka man John Murray. Most of them have heard of it before coming here, but when they actually see it, it's yeah, it's kind of a wow factor. Yeah, it's, it's amazing. The traditional custodians hope opening up the bunyas will help the world understand how to care for it. We're just guardians, eh? guardians, protectors, yeah. And do what we can. Um, but yeah, it feeds us, clothes us, it's a mother. Yeah. She looked after us this long. During the Olympics, John is hoping he can take the role of guide to visitors. I'm still learning myself, but uh, the stuff I have learned, yeah, I'm willing to do tours and stuff as well to uh, just get that learning out there. You know, not just to mob, but to everyone. Our way of looking after country, I think um, everyone needs to understand that. Research shows overseas travellers are wanting to experience Indigenous culture and Peter Homan says interest is growing. Dinner Under the Stars is on the cards with nature's lights. Isn't that an amazing story how all the fireflies come out and descend into this into this little valley here and um, the fireflies are lighting up because it's the end of their life and it's their death, it's their, their swan song, their, their finality. I love it, I just love the whole story about that and um, to experience that must be just phenomenal. So yeah, that'll all add to this, this whole area. What role will it play in the 2032 Olympics? Look, we've already spoken to some people close to the Olympics, including our own minister, the Department of Tourism, Innovation and Sport. They think this will probably be the hero experience for the 2032 Games as far as um, a tourist experience within a, a three-hour drive of Brisbane. Southern Queensland Country Tourism's Peter Homan ending that story from Belinda Sanders. And there's a beautiful video accompanying that story on Australia Wide's webpage. The Bunny Mountains look spectacular. The treatment of wild brumbies is a vexed issue in Australia. Brumbies are a declared feral animal. And to control them, they're trapped as part of the 2021 Kosciuszko National Park Wild Horse Heritage Management Plan. Under New South Wales rules, the trapped horses can then be rehomed for domestication. And that's where central Queensland couple Paul Johnston and Maureen Levin come in. They've started a rescue clinic near Biloela and are now finding new homes for the wild Brumbies. Pat Heaney travelled to Clearview Brumby Rescue near Thangool for this story. Central Queensland grazier Paul Johnston has always loved working with horses. They're so giving. Once you have their trust, they will give you 110, 120%. So when he first learned of the controversy surrounding how to best manage wild horses in New South Wales, he was inspired to act. Brumbies are declared feral animals in Australia and are trapped in the high country as part of the 2021 Kosciuszko National Park Wild Horse Heritage Management Plan. The New South Wales government plan lists rehoming trapped horses for domestication as a primary control method. Seven, eight years ago, um, I got 
introduced closely with the Brumbies and we feel that their heritage value is uh, worth a great to this country. So we thought we'd step up to the plate and say we'll start rehoming them. So Paul and his partner, Maureen Levin, established Clearview Brumby Rescue at Thangool, 150 kilometres south of Rockhampton in 2020. We said we'd save some Brumbies. You can only save five at a time. Uh, we were going down to get them. It was the, they said they were available the Friday before COVID, so we ended up getting a truck, bringing them up, and we said, well, we'll take 15, not five. And that was our foundation herd. And uh, to my knowledge, we are the largest KMP rehomer in Australia. We're up in excess of 300 now that we've rehomed. Ms Levin says she has embraced the opportunity to give the animals a new lease on life. Mate, it means the world to me. Um, I always wanted to be able to save more. After that, I had people contacting me left, right and centre saying, you know, we wish we could do what you're doing, we wish we could take on a Brumby. Mr Johnston says he was surprised by the overwhelming amount of support the clinic has received from all across the country. When we started rehoming, we were swamped with enthusiasm from people wanting to rehome. 90%... Uh, in Queensland, we've been we've rehomed as far south as Lismore. Uh, we've rehomed as far north as Proserpine, uh, inland to Barcaldine. We've even rehomed uh, two Brumbies to Tasmania. The clinic relies on volunteers to care for the animals, and Mr Johnston says there has been a multitude of people helping, many of whom have taken up residence on site. The volunteers come from all over, and we've just offered it that if people have got an interest in the Brumbies that they can drop in, whether it be for a couple of days, a couple of weeks, uh, help out. They get the experience of the Brumbies and then they can uh, move on and talk about it. We've had people come here from New Zealand, uh, the Netherlands, that have had nothing to do with horses before. They've come here and gone away absolutely rocked with the experience and some have come back three, four times. So it seems to have an impact on After years of debate about wild Brumby management, Mr Johnston says one of his motivations is to challenge public perceptions of the animals. There's so many misconceptions out there about these fellas. When, when you see people's faces, they're, they're just never what they expected. It's such a learning experience. I am one of these people that have been taught. Uh, once I got the first slot, you just can't explain it. I have a word I call it, and most people have experienced it, I call it the wow factor. You'll be in the yards with them doing something and they just do something out of the blue and you just go, wow. Where did that come from? In Springshaw, 330 kilometres west of Rockhampton, the idea of taming a wild Brumby is taking root. A group of locals has established the Springshaw Show Brumby Challenge, tasked with taming a Brumby to ride in the local show next June. Competitor Rob Stewart says it's an exciting opportunity to test out his skills. It should be a good showcase of um, different levels of people's ability to get, get something that was four weeks ago running around wild to, um, to hopefully being part of a crew and being able to um, actively participate in the show and, and hopefully cattle work at home. It's early days, but Mr Stewart says he can see a future for Brumbies on his property. Yeah, I think it's a natural resource that we've got um, and if people have got the time and the ability to, to put into them to get them quiet and, and used, um, yeah, definitely. Mr Johnston hopes greater public exposure will grant more Brumbies a second chance. While they are trapping them, we will stand up to the plate and do the best we can to find them for forever homes. And these horses have proved themselves that they are diversified and can be used in many disciplines. Until you've experienced it, don't knock them and don't criticise. They are just not what you're expected. They are so unique. They're, they're one-offs. Every one of them. Yeah. 
Central Queensland grazier Paul Johnston finishing that story by Pat Heaney. This is ABC Australia Wide. Now picture this scene. You're visiting Northern Australia and you pop out for a beer with friends. Next thing you know, half a dozen scantily clad women are on a stage, dirty dancing while jugs of water are tipped all over them. The crowd goes wild and soon people are cheering loudly to vote for their favourite women. It may sound like something from an American college frat party, but wet t-shirt contests are mainstream weekly events in places like Broome, Cairns and Darwin. National Regional Social Affairs reporter Aaron Park went along to see the spectacle and to find out how locals feel about the smutty stage shows. It's a Thursday night in Broome, and as usual, the biggest congregation of locals is at the Roebuck Bay Hotel. Two women, tourists from Perth, are watching the weekly wet t-shirt competition for the first time. They get water thrown over them, basically, and they yeah. start dancing for the crowd, and some girls Doing start to strip a little whatever bit. Whatever yeah. they want, really. And what was the atmosphere like? Everyone was respectful, which was good. Basically just being free, like, with their bodies. What? Unanimous decision. The winner is lady number two. Well done, you've just won $750. Do you find it a bit surprising that this kind of movement... I had no idea this would be allowed. Yeah, when my friends told me about it, I was like, oh my God. It's a reaction many Southerners have as they watch the scantily clad women gyrate on stage at weekly contests held in Broome, Darwin and Cairns. Some, like this 30-year-old woman from Sydney, aren't impressed. It's pretty degrading, yeah. This local man spoke to the ABC but asked that his name not be used. He and his friends attend the wet T-shirt contest regularly and says it's all just a bit of good fun. It's a mainstream event, like it's a big ticket item in Broome. Like, you go to the wet titties, and it is a good night. Are there as many women there as men? Or oh, men? totally. It's got to be 50-50. Have you ever felt uncomfortable? No. Well, I think they'd find it uncomfortable if they didn't, if they were forced to get up, but they're getting paid to do it, so it's win-win for everyone. Like, why wouldn't you? You're a backpacker in Broome, and they're paying you 750 bucks to get up on stage... And it's about how much fun they have. As much as people would say that it's a bit derogatory to women, they're paying good money and the women want to do it. And the voting is on the funness of the the girl up there doing it. There are strict rules requiring genitalia remain covered by cloth and a ban on photography to prevent images of the women circulating online. Phones away. I know you want to record this, but you can't. So are wet t-shirt competitions a bit of old-fashioned fun or a sexist relic? They're in decline in the United States where they originated. So what does it say about Northern Australia that they remain so popular? The female body has been entertainment for as long as it has existed. Dr Pia Rowe studies gender equality at the University of Canberra. She says the question of whether raunchy stage shows are empowering or exploitative is a complex one. If you can say that, yes, it's legal and that it's not hurting anyone else, then I think you could say that people should be allowed to do whatever the heck they want with their own body and their own life. 
but I don't think anyone would go as far as and call that empowering. It might feel like you have power over yourself. Perhaps you even have power over others when they are ogling over you and you feel like they're on top of the world. But how far does the power actually go? Will it translate into meaningful power in other areas of your life? Because I would argue that it does not. And she says it's more likely a reflection of the lifestyle and demographics in northern Australia rather than backwards attitudes. A couple of years ago, we did a national study on Australians' attitudes towards gender equality. And we found that in a lot of areas, the rural areas held a lot more progressive views than the urban ones. So I would never say that people in remote areas are not as progressive. Back at the Roebuck Bay Hotel, the night is winding up, with the size of the crowds suggesting the event will be around for a long time to come. I thought it was fun. It was a good time. It was, I it was an experience. entertaining. It was, yeah, something different, I guess, you don't really see it anywhere else. Yeah. Not going to get up on stage. No, <laughs> personally, no. Not for me, but go on them for doing it if they want to. Yeah. yeah. National Regional Social Affairs reporter Erin Park reporting there from the Wet T-Shirt Competitions in Broome. And that's Australia-wide for this Monday. You can't say we don't have a broad brush of stories here on the programme. I'm Sinead Mangan. I hope you have a lovely evening. Cheerio. This is an ABC podcast.